First lecture, part one of On the Future of Our Educational Institutions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Aaron Rivera. On the Future of Our Educational Institutions by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by J. M. Kennedy. First lecture, part one. Delivered on the 16th of January, 1872. Ladies and gentlemen, the subject I now propose to consider with you is such a serious and important one, and is in a sense so disquieting, that, like you, I would gladly turn to anyone who could proffer some information concerning it. Were he ever so young, were his ideas ever so improbable, provided that he were able, by the exercise of his own faculties, to furnish some satisfactory and sufficient explanation. It is just possible that he may have had the opportunity of hearing sound views expressed in reference to that vexed question of the future of our educational institutions, and that he may wish to repeat them to you. He may even have had distinguished teachers fully qualified to foretell what is to come, and, like the haruspices of Rome, able to do so after an inspection of the entrails of the present. Indeed, you yourselves may expect something of this kind from me. I happened once, in a strange but perfectly harmless circumstances, to overhear a conversation on this subject between two remarkable men, and the more striking points of the discussion, together with their manner of handling the theme, are so indelibly imprinted on my memory that, whenever I reflect on these matters, I invariably find myself falling into their grooves of thought. I cannot, however, profess to have the same courageous confidence which they displayed both in their daring utterance of forbidden truths and in that still more daring conception of the hopes with which they astonished me. It therefore seems to me to be in the highest degree important that a record of this conversation should be made, so that others might be incited to form a judgment concerning the striking views and conclusions it contains. And, to this end, I had special grounds for believing that I should do well to avail myself of the opportunity afforded by this course of lectures. I am well aware of the nature of the community to whose serious consideration I now wish to commend that conversation. I know it to be a community which is striving to educate and enlighten its members on a scale so magnificently out of proportion to its size that it must put all larger cities to shame. This being so, I presume I may take it for granted that in a quarter where so much is done for the things of which I wish to speak, people must also think a good deal about them. In my account of the conversation already mentioned, I shall be able to make myself completely understood only to those among my audience who will be able to guess what I can do no more than suggest, who will supply what I am compelled to omit, and who, above all, need but to be reminded not taught. Listen, therefore, ladies and gentlemen, while I recount my harmless experience and the less harmless conversation between the two gentlemen who, so far, I have not named. Let us now imagine ourselves in the position of a young student, that is to say, in a position which, in our present age of bewildering movement and feverish excitability, has become an almost impossible one. It is necessary to have lived through it in order to believe that such careless self-lulling and comfortable indifference to the moment, or to time in general, are possible. In this condition I, and a friend about my own age, spent a year at the University of Bonn on the Rhine. It was a year which, in its complete lack of plans and projects for the future, seems almost like a dream to me now, a dream framed, as it were, by two periods of growth, 
We too remained quiet and peaceful, although we were surrounded by fellows who in the main were very differently disposed, and from time to time we experienced considerable difficulty in meeting and resisting the somewhat too pressing advances of the young men of our own age. Now, however, that I can look upon the stand we had to take against their opposing forces, I cannot help associating them in my mind with those checks we were wont to receive in our dreams as, for instance, when we imagine we are able to fly and yet feel ourselves held back by some incomprehensible power. I and my friend had many reminiscences in common, and these dated from the period of our boyhoods upward. One of these I must relate to you, since it forms a sort of prelude to the harmless experience already mentioned. On the occasion of a certain journey up the Rhine, which we made together one summer, it happened that he and I independently conceived the very same plan at the very same hour on the same spot and we were so struck by this unwanted coincidence that we determined to carry the plan out forthwith. We resolved to found a kind of small club which would consist of ourselves and a few friends, and the object of which would be to provide us with a stable and binding organization directing and adding interest to our creative impulses in art and literature. Or, to put it more plainly, each of us would be pledged to present an original piece of work to the club once a month, either a poem, a treatise, an architectural design, or a musical composition, upon which each of the others, in a friendly spirit, would have to pass free in unrestrained criticism. We thus hoped, by means of mutual correction, to be able both to stimulate and to chasten our creative impulses and, as a matter of fact, the success of the scheme was such that we have both always felt a sort of respectful attachment for the hour and the place at which it first took shape in our minds. This attachment was very soon transformed into a right, for we all agreed to go, whenever it was possible to do so, once a year to that lonely spot near Rolandsek, where on that summer's day, while sitting together lost in meditation, we were suddenly inspired by the same thought. Frankly speaking, the rules which were drawn up on the formation of the club were never very strictly observed. But owing to the very fact that we had many sins of omission on our conscience during our student year in Bonn, when we were once more on the banks of the Rhine, we firmly resolved not only to observe our rule, but also to gratify our feelings and our sense of gratitude for reverently visiting that spot near Rolandsek on the day appointed. It was, however, with some difficulty that we were able to carry our plans into execution. For, on the very day we had selected for our excursion, the large and lively students' association, which always hindered us in our flights, did their utmost to put obstacles in our way and hold us back. Our association had organized a general holiday excursion to Rolandsek on the very day my friend and I had fixed upon, the object of the outing being to assemble all its members for the last time at the close of the half-year and to send them home with pleasant recollections of their last hours together. The day was a glorious one. The weather was of the kind which, in our climate at least, only falls to our lot in late summer. Heaven and earth merged harmoniously with one another in... Glowing wondrously in the sunshine, autumn freshness blended with the blue expanse above. Arrayed in the bright fantastic garb in which, amid the gloomy fashions now reigning, students alone may indulge, we boarded a steamer which was gaily decorated in our honor and hoisted our flag on its mast. From both banks of the river there came at intervals the sound of signal guns, fired according to our orders, with the view of acquainting both our host in Rollinsack and the inhabitants in the neighborhood with our approach. I shall not speak of the noisy journey from the landing stage, through the excited and expectant little place, nor shall I refer to the esoteric jokes exchanged between ourselves. I also make no mention of a feast which became both wild and noisy, or of an extraordinary musical production in the execution of which, whether as soloists or as chorus, 
We all ultimately had to share, in which I, as the musical advisor of our club, had not only had to rehearse, but was then forced to conduct. Towards the end of this piece, which grew ever wilder and which was sung to even quicker time, I made a sign to my friend, and just as the last chord rang like a yell through the building, he and I vanished, leaving behind us a raging pandemonium. In a moment, we were in the refreshing and breathless stillness of nature. The shadows were already lengthening, the sun still shone steadily, though it had sunk a great deal in the heavens, and from the green and glittering waves of the Rhine a cool breeze was wafted over our hot faces. Our solemn rite bound us only in so far as the latest hours of the day were concerned, and we therefore determined to employ the last moments of clear daylight by giving ourselves up to one of our many hobbies. At that time we were passionately fond of pistol shooting, and both of us in later years found the skill we had acquired as amateurs of great use in our military career. Our club servant happened to know the somewhat distant and elevated spot which we used as a range, and had carried our pistols there in advance. The spot lay near the upper border of the wood which covered the lesser heights behind Rollinsack. It was a small, uneven plateau close to the place we had consecrated in memory of its associations. On a wooded slope alongside of our shooting range there was a small piece of ground which had been cleared of wood, and which made an ideal halting place. From it, one could get a view of the Rhine over the tops of the trees and the brushwood, so that the beautiful, undulating lines of the Seven Mountains, and above all, the Droschenfels, bounded the horizon against the group of trees, while in the center of the bow formed the glistening Rhine itself. The island of Nonworth stood out, as it suspended in the river's arms. This was the place which had become sacred to us through the dreams and plans we had in common, and to which we intended to withdraw later in the evening. Nay, to which we should be obliged to withdraw, if we wished to close the day in accordance with the law we had imposed upon ourselves. At one end of the little uneven plateau, and not very far away, there stood the mighty trunk of an oak tree, prominently visible against a background quite bare of trees and consisting merely of low, undulating hills in the distance. Working together, we had once carved a pentagram in the side of this tree trunk. Years of exposure to rain and storm had slightly deepened the channels we'd cut, and the figure seemed a welcome target for a pistol practice. It was already late in the afternoon when we reached our improvised range, and our oak stump cast a long, attenuated shadow across the barren heath. All was still. Thanks to the lofty trees at our feet, we were unable to catch a glimpse of the valley of the Rhine below. The peacefulness of the spot seemed only to intensify the loudness of our pistol shots, and I had scarcely fired my second barrel at the pentagram when I felt someone lay hold of my arm, and noticed that my friend had also someone beside him who had interrupted his loading. Turning sharply on my heels, I found myself face to face with an astonished old gentleman, and felt what must have been a very powerful dog make a lunge at my back. My friend had been approached by a somewhat younger man than I had, but before we could give expression to our surprise, the older of the two interlopers burst forth in the following threatening and heated strain. No, no, he called to us. No duels must be fought here, but least of all you young students fight one. Away with these pistols and compose yourself. Be reconciled, shake hands. What? And are you the salt of the earth, the intelligence of the future, the seed of our hopes? And are you not even able to emancipate yourselves from the insane code of honor and its violent regulations? I will not cast any aspirations on your heart, but your heads certainly do you no credit. You, whose youth is watched over by the wisdom of Greece and Rome, and whose youthful spirits, at the cost of enormous pains, have been flooded with the light of the sages and heroes of antiquity, 
Can you not refrain from making the code of knightly honor, that is to say, the code of folly and brutality, the guiding principle of your conduct? Examine it rationally once and for all, and reduce it to plain terms. Lay its pitiable narrowness bare, and let it be the touchstone, not of your hearts, but of your minds. If you do not regret it, then, it will merely show that your head is not fitted for work in a sphere where great gifts of discrimination are needful in order to burst the bonds of prejudice, and where a well-balanced understanding is necessary for the purpose of distinguishing right from wrong, even when the difference between them lies deeply hidden is not, in this case, so ridiculously obvious. In that case, therefore, my lads, try to go through life in some other honorable manner. Join the army, learn a handicraft that pays its way. To this rough, though admittedly just, flood of eloquence, we replied with some irritation, interrupting each other continually in doing so. In the first place you are mistaken concerning the main point, for we are not here to fight a duel at all, but rather to practice pistol shooting. Secondly, you do not appear to know how a real duel is conducted. Do you suppose that we should have faced each other in this lonely spot, like two highwaymen, without seconds or doctors, etc.? Thirdly, with regard to the question of dueling, we each have our own opinions and do not require to be waylaid and surprised by the sort of instruction you may feel disposed to give us. This reply, which was certainly not polite, made a bad impression upon the old man. At first, when he heard that we were not about to fight a duel, he surveyed us more kindly. But when we reached the last passage of our speech, he seemed so vexed that he growled. When, however, we began to speak of our point of view, he quickly caught hold of his companion, turned sharply round, and cried to us in bitter tones, People should not have points of view, but thoughts. And then his companion added, Be respectful when a man such as this even makes mistakes. Meanwhile, my friend who had reloaded, fired a shot at the pentagram after having cried, Look out! The sudden report behind his back made the old man savage. Once more he turned round and looked sourly at my friend, after which he said to his companion in a feeble voice, what shall we do? These young men will be the death of me with their firing. You should know, said the younger man, turning to us, that your noisy pastime amount, as it happens on this occasion, to an attempt upon the life of philosophy. You observe this venerable man. He is in a position to beg you to desist from firing here, and when such a man begs, well, his request is generally granted, the old man interjected, surveying us sternly. As a matter of fact, we did not know what to make of the whole matter. We could not understand what our noisy pastimes could have in common with philosophy, nor could we see why, out of regard for polite scruples, we should abandon our shooting range, and at this moment we may have appeared somewhat undecided and perturbed. The companion, noticing our momentary discomfiture, proceeded to explain the matter to us. We are compelled, he said, to linger in this immediate neighborhood for an hour or so. We have a rendezvous here. An eminent friend of this eminent man is to meet us here this evening and we had actually selected this peaceful spot, with its few benches in the midst of the wood, for the meeting. It would really be most unpleasant if, owing to your continual pistol practice, we were to be subjected to an unending series of shocks. Surely your own feelings will tell you that it is impossible for you to continue your firing when you hear that he who has selected this quiet and isolated place for a meeting with a friend is one of our most eminent philosophers. This explanation only succeeded in perturbing us more for we saw a danger threatening us which was even greater than the loss of our shooting range, and we asked eagerly, Where is this quiet spot? Surely not to the left here in the wood. That is the very place. But this evening that place belongs to us, my friend interposed. We must have it, we cried together. 
Our long projected celebration seemed at that moment more important than all the philosophies of the world, and we gave such vehement and animated utterance to our sentiments that in view of the incomprehensible nature of our claims, we must have cut a somewhat ridiculous figure. At any rate, our philosophical interlopers regarded us with expressions of amused inquiry, as if they expected us to proffer some sort of apology, but we were silent, for we wished above all to keep our secret. Thus we stood facing one another in silence, while the sunset dyed the treetops a ruddy gold. The philosopher contemplated the sun. His companion contemplated him, and we turned our eyes towards our nook in the woods, which today we seemed in such great danger of losing. A feeling of sullen anger took possession of us. What is philosophy, we asked ourselves, if it prevents a man from being by himself, or from enjoying the select company of a friend? In sooth, if it prevents him from being a philosopher? For we regarded the celebration of our right as a thoroughly philosophical performance. In celebrating it, we wished to form plans and resolutions for the future. By means of quiet reflections, we hoped to light upon an idea which would once again help us to form and gratify our spirit in the future, just as that former idea had done during our boyhood. The solemn act derived its very significance from this resolution, that nothing definite was to be done. We were only to be alone, and to sit still and meditate, as we had done five years before when we had each been inspired with the same thought. It was to be a silent solemnization, all reminiscence and all future. The present was to be a hyphen between the two, and fate, now unfriendly, had just stepped into our magic circle, and we knew not how to dismiss her. The very unusual character of the circumstances filled us with mysterious excitement. Whilst we stood thus in silence for some time, divided into two hostile groups, the clouds above waxed even redder, and the evening seemed to grow more peaceful and mild. We could almost fancy we heard the regular breathing of nature as she put the final touches to her work of art, the glorious day we had just enjoyed. When, suddenly, the calm evening air was rent by a confused and boisterous cry of joy which seemed to come from the Rhine. A number of voices could be heard in the distance. They were those of our fellow students who by that time must have taken to the Rhine in small boats. It occurred to us that we should be missed and that we should also miss something. Almost simultaneously, my friend and I raised our pistols. Our shots were echoed back to us, and with their echo there came from the valley the sound of a well-known cry intended as a signal of identification, for our passion for shooting had brought us both repute and ill repute in our club. At the same time, we were conscious that our behavior towards the silent philosophical couple had been exceptionally ungentlemanly. They had been quietly contemplating us for some time, and when we fired the shock made them draw close up to each other. We hurried up to them, and each in our turn cried out, Forgive us! That was our last shot, and it was intended for our friends on the Rhine. They have understood us. Do you hear? If you insist upon having that place among the trees, grant us at least the permission to recline there also. You will find a number of benches on the spot. We shall not disturb you. We shall sit quite still and shall not utter a word. But it is now past seven o'clock, and we must go there at once. That sounds more mysterious than it is, I added after a pause. We have made a solemn vow to spend this coming hour on that ground, and there were reasons for the vow. The spot is sacred to us, owing to some pleasant associations. It must also inaugurate a good future for us. We shall therefore endeavor to leave you with no disagreeable recollections of our meeting, even though we have done much to perturb and frighten you. End of First Lecture, Part 1